this is a download from Force Migration Online. To find out more, please go to www.forcemigration.org. So uh, we're going to talk about Morris's career and the lessons learned and all sorts of interesting things, I'm sure. Um, Morris, you, um, I know you started working for Oxfam. I first came across you when you were working in the Red Sea province in Sudan. Um, how did you get involved with Oxfam? Um, I'd been living in Sudan uh, as a teacher, and um, this was the time of the... the drought and the famine in the Horn of Africa, and uh, I'd sort of got involved with some refugees from Ethiopia, where uh, the place where I was living in the east of Sudan, and then um, later got in, uh, got a job with Save the Children in Darfur, um, and I'd burnt myself out, as lots of people do, on their first uh, first kind of emergency job, and uh, I was back in this country, and I was lorry driving, as it happened, and I heard... Marcus Thompson on the radio talking about somewhere, I can't remember where, wrote a letter in and was invited to uh, to come and talk with somebody in Oxford. Yeah. Um, and I thought I was going to come on and talk and I only discovered halfway through the day that I was actually being interviewed for a job. Um, and uh, by the time I got home to where I was living in Canterbury that night, um, somebody rung up and told my girlfriend at the time that uh, I was being offered the job. And since she didn't know I was going for a job in Sudan, it was all uh, a bit irregular. And uh, Oxfam HR has moved on since then, uh, although maybe not as far as it might have done. Um, <laughs> not good HR practice, I have to say. And, um, yeah. and so I've already lived three years in Sudan. When I went back to work for Oxfam on the strength of a year with Save the Children as a, you know, doing food relief, I suppose, and um, my knowledge of Sudan and Sudanese Arabic, and I went and lived for two, two and a half years in Port Sudan and working all over Red Sea Province in northeast Sudan on what was at that time Oxfam's largest program anywhere in the world and largest office as well, which was, um, I think it was some 70 people, which by yeah. today's standards is moderate size. I think we, uh, we have huge offices by comparison nowadays. But those were the days when, um, although I was what was called the relief coordinator, mm. which was um, uh, in charge of the whole program, which ran to several millions of pounds, uh, you know, I still used to do some of my own driving, change the wheels and um, you know, do my own filing and all sorts of stuff, whereas uh, nowadays we've divided such things down into an infinitely small mm. uh, little gradations of tasks. So you have you know, logisticians and uh, administrators and all sorts of things. And uh, I think it's one of the differences really from those days to these is that it was an unprofessional world um, in general and in Oxfam as well. We professionalised ourselves quite a lot. But you, you came into it presumably just through this experience with SCF, but with no kind of training in formal training in nutrition or uh, what normally goes for you know relief operations. No, you're just a lorry driver, basically. Uh, oh, I was more than a lorry, just a lorry driver. But um, no, but you're right. I had no, I had no formal training. I mean, it was an unprofessionalised profession, and, um, and no, nobody had. Um, you know, MAs in logistics or in development studies mm. or something. And nowadays, when you recruit people into the kind of post that I 
I took then, you'd no way you'd have taken somebody who who is as I was then. Um, I mean, even less so, you know, than uh, well, would say the children have taken me on because mm. I had no experience when they took me on to do it. Um, and you know, I've always been a generalist and sort of made it up. And it was a very, it was a kind of coming through the back door in those days. Whereas yes. nowadays, 20 years on, we've um, we've become, uh, I suppose, despite what job adverts say, which is experience counts for more than qualifications. Nevertheless, uh, there's an awful uh, there's an awful expectation that people will have you know, all sorts of training in. You know, I was not yeah. trained as a manager, and I think that probably hasn't changed a lot. Oxfam still employs a lot of people as managers who are not trained in management in lots of different ways. Um, I wasn't trained in administration. I wasn't. I wasn't trained in anything. I just came along and hacked it. And as it happens, I think you know we got away with it because I think I did okay. But it was a risk that mm. nobody, I think, had quantified or tried to quantify is the wrong word. But I mean to try and work out what that risk was and whether. You know, uh, we needed somebody, and I looked like I could do the job, and I could make intelligent comments about the right things at interview, yeah. and there I was suddenly running an enormous program, and lots of um, uh, lots of staff, lots of responsibilities for which I I had no training at all. And um, tell us more about the program. Eh? What was it that you were doing? We um, it was a program that um, had been branded uh, food for recovery um, because. It was a rather unconventional food program at the time, but the idea being that people, many of the people in Red Sea province, were no longer starving in desperate need of food, and, and by the conventions of the time, and still to some extent now, um, they didn't need food and therefore shouldn't have been getting it. But the argument had been made that um, since their livelihood was largely dependent on their animals, um, which was probably slightly less true than we thought it was. Um, and animals don't sort of, they're not like a crop that you can mm. plant one year and you've suddenly got a harvest and you're okay. I mean, animals, take, you know, herds of animals take a long time to recover. And so there were these nice little charts showing that if you started with three goats, how long it took before you had whatever the viable number of goats was. And we were supporting people so that they didn't have to sell their young animals and could let them grow and mature and their, their herds would grow that much faster if they didn't have to sell the animals in order to buy grain. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the program was terribly finely tuned, much too finely tuned. Um, you know, uh, every, every little subgroup of people got a slightly different ration depending on some esoteric calculation that was partly based on nutritional statistics and um, seemed very scientific but actually wasn't. And um, that's that, interesting. Uh, just let me ask you a question yeah. about that because we seem to have moved back to that way of doing things a little bit in modern theory. Because there was all the criticism of, of sort of mass food aid given willy nilly to everybody, mm. and we're now moving back to the concepts of sort of safety nets, which are much more individualized. And you know, everybody gets a particular, every community gets something, and the people in the communities are identified as being particularly at risk so they get more or less and so on. Yeah. And you're saying this isn't a new concept. Oh, it's not a new concept at all. I, I, think, what, um, I think what was wrong, if it, were, if it was wrong, was um, that it was, it, was, it was all too precise. It was pseudo-scientific. And, and the programme was intended to run for another five years mm -hmm. and I was employed to run it for the next two years and then you know, either stay or I handed it on to somebody else. And, and I... 
and I rapidly did two things. One was um, change from a um, you know very variable set of rations from you know full ration down to a little bit to basically three three types. You know there was a big ration, a medium ration, and a small ration. It was like the three bears and Goldilocks really in the porridge. Um, because I didn't think we could be more sophisticated than that. We could say people need more or less, but not you know, to the degree to which it had been defined before. And um, you know, food aid is a fairly blunt tool, and I think where we are now, we're trying to use it in a more sophisticated way. But nevertheless, it is still a blunt tool, um, in as much as people need food to eat. We all need food to eat, but the food that you give people to eat they very often don't eat it, uh, sometimes because it's the wrong food, sometimes because they have other priorities and will sell it. Um, <clears throat> and so the, the attempt to be more careful with what kind of food and how you distribute it and uh, what sort of quantities and, and so on is a, is a worthy attempt and is the right thing to do. I just think we were on the right track but trying to do it too, too subtly, if you like. Um, and the other thing I did was I rapidly came to the conclusion that the food aid shouldn't go on for another five years. Um, and I wrote a paper back to Oxfam House, um, which I'll come back to in a second, uh, which caused a bit of a furore because I, you know, we, we got funding and had a deal with the World Food Programme and this was going to go on for another five years and suddenly the programme manager, me, sort of said, no, I think we ought to stop it. Um, and... Uh, it resulted in a very interesting series of discussions and communications, but in the end, I won, you know, I won, I, I won the argument. I mean, I made the case and it was accepted, mm -hmm. and we then spent the next year, year and a half closing down the program. Who, um, who was your boss at the time that you had um, to persuade? Um, my boss in Oxfam House was Liz Gascoigne. Um, but of course there was the emergencies unit, as it was then, that yeah. had an interest in this, and that was Tony Vokes and Marcus Thompson. Um, and in between there was, you know, I had my immediate manager in Port Sudan, and then I had the country representative who was uh, Mark Duffield, who's now quite famous in academic circles. And um, he, taken over uh, from him, was a very old Oxfammer called uh, David Depuri, who, uh, who might be interesting for this archive as well mm. um, and uh, but there was also a man called Tim Foster who designed the program um, a very smart and very um, uh, what's the word uh, convincing person who didn't like the idea that his his plan was being undermined um, <laughs> and weighed in quite heavily um, but I, I mean we did we did a good and responsible job what we did was we wound down the program gently we didn't mm. sort of say all right it's going to stop in three months we actually spent three months planning it, and then a long time telling people that we were going to do it, and then quite a long time gradually winding it down, uh, reducing the rations, from, you know, the high ones down to the medium, medium to low, low ones phasing them out, um, sometimes keeping people on low rations for quite a long time, mm -hmm. while people who've been on higher ones lost it completely. I mean, we did a very complex job over a, quite a long period of time, and I, I, mean, I feel very proud that we did that, because... World Food Program, as soon as they saw the argument that they wouldn't have to produce any more food, wanted to say, right, you know, cut that off, that'll be nice, mm. good, save that, save that money, save that food. And, and I spent a long time convincing them to do it the long, slow, responsible way. And I think that was the right thing to do. And we even, uh, I even persuaded Oxfam to, to go on paying me and some of our Sudanese staff so that after we'd stopped the distribution, we could do what I called post-cut monitoring. 
the time, which is to try and work out what was the effect on people mm -hmm. of getting cut off from the food aid. So, in the, if you like, to make a check that the decision was right. Not that I was sure that we'd be able to backtrack and get, get it reinstated if it turned out to be wrong, but at least to go and look at it and talk to people about how we'd done it and whether they were surviving without it. And what so was I, the effect of that? Um, were people okay afterwards? I think people were okay. And I think that people, mm. well, people were okay in two senses. One is they, um, they like people in most parts of the world, um, plan their lives. And the thing that we had enabled them to do was to plan their lives. And during the food distribution, mm. we had said to them, uh, you know, every month or two months or whatever, you'll get this much food for your community and it will be divided up however you divide it up among your community. And so people, as far as, you know, the logistics allowed, could more or less depend on what they were getting. And we did a reasonably good job, or World Food Programme, did a reasonably good job in fulfilling those promises. And we then said to people, you know, in six months, nine months, a year, you will no longer get this food. And explained to people what our thinking was and heard their arguments about why it should continue longer. Or, and some people said, okay, that's fine, you know, that's okay, we'll, we'll be okay. And, you know, it turned out that people on the whole had survived. I suppose the, um, the interesting thing is that since then, and that was mid-1990, we finally stopped that, mm -hmm. Um, there have been, I think, three more rounds of the same sort of thing in the same area because people had a chronic need rather than an acute need, and I think we were right to stop it then. Um, and I also think we did it we did it reasonably well. And I, I look back on that with a degree of satisfaction for having, you know, uh, designed it well myself, but also mm. to have got Oxfam to to do it well. Um, we must, we must have had some excellent local staff oh, to support you. Oh, we had some fantastic local staff. I mean, there's some, some incredibly dedicated people. I mean, there were people who'd been in the programme for two or three years before I got there. And I happen to know that at least one of them um, <clears throat> is still there. And what are we talking? We're talking 15 years later. Um, and uh, the person I'm thinking of uh, is a woman who, uh, in that society... Yeah, very um, unlikely to be a public figure, if you like, but has become one. And during the time I was there, she was one of the people who we promoted to becoming a team leader, um, a team leader over some men, which was almost unthinkable. Um, uh, who was that? Who was that? Her name is Fatma. I can't remember her other name. I can't remember her father's name, which is the other half of her name. Uh -huh. I can't remember. Oh well. Um, I have a very I'll strong mental that. image of her. I've even got a picture of her downstairs. Um, and, uh, and we had some extraordinarily <coughs> dedicated people. And so people who had to work with dilemmas that we didn't have to work with. You know, I was an expatriate. Mm. I was an outsider, if you like, with an intense interest, but not a, um, a base in the society that I was working in. And I developed a kind of social base, I mean, a network of friends and... and you know, I sort of belonged in a strange sort of way, but, mm. but it, you know, I didn't have the tribal interests and the, the power interests and the political interests that they had. And there were some people who, who took what were probably extraordinary risks for themselves in being very honest and straightforward in running a food programme in a responsible way rather than doing the other thing they might have done, which is wheel and deal to get the best deal for you know, their lot. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm sure that some of them had to do a lot of 
political work that was, as far as I was concerned, behind the scenes, because um, they didn't want, if you like, to compromise the work that they were doing, but had to, mm. you know, persuade the society, whether they operated it politically, that that was okay as well. And I'm sure that they did a huge amount that we would, you know, we outsiders were never aware of, to enable us to do a good program. Not perfect, but good. You, you mentioned that the food went to communities. I mean, I suppose nowadays we're very conscious of uh, communities being divided and women particularly getting a bad deal. I mean, were there, had you got built into the program looking at specific needs of women and girls? Um, God, we could get into a very long thing about Beecher Society in uh, the Red Sea Hills here. Um, all of our teams were made up of a mixture of men and women because uh, men can only talk to men and women can only talk to women. Um, well, that was the theory. Uh, in fact, as I said, you know, we managed to make people like Fatma uh, in the end team leaders who could talk to, you know, who, who had the confidence, developed the confidence mm. to, talk, to talk to men. And uh, I suppose many of the men had got used to us enough to uh, accept the weird ways that we wanted to do things and therefore <laughs> accept talking to her. Um, um, and they were our, I mean, those women were our, um, were our eyes and our ears with the women. Mm. <clears throat> but um, the, if you like, the, the, the way that society is structured um, made it very, very difficult to have access to, to women in groups. And in fact, women don't often operate in groups in, in that society. And so many of the, the communities that we were dealing with are mobile and uh, split up, mm -hmm. and we were delivering food to places where people weren't, but they would kind of come by and pick it up somewhere. So it's a very kind of odd sense of community, in a way. Well, we were conscious of... Yeah, we were conscious of the, um, uh, I suppose, the, the, the need to consider gender dynamics, as we put it nowadays. And, and in fact, when I left, uh, I wrote a whole series of papers about... Uh, the program and the society and the pro and you know how, what we've done and why and so on and one of them was about uh, gender uh, still exists on some common drive in Oxfam somewhere probably and I'm not sure that um, that today's gender advisors would um, would see our analysis as having been terribly sophisticated but we certainly worked on it and thought about it and my assistant um, was a very intelligent woman, a uh, Sudanese woman, um, who was very aware of gender issues and wasn't going to let a lot go by. So uh, she and I worked very closely together, and I'm sure, I, I find it hard to remember details now, but I'm sure I was very dependent on her. Uh, she wasn't a Sudanese woman from that area, which made it more difficult, actually, but anyway, I was very, very aware of the fact that I kind of needed her support in getting things like that right. But it wasn't, you know, you think, oh, 20 years ago, we were, you know, cavemen, and we didn't think about these things, but we did. And uh, as I say, I'm not sure that we were terribly sophisticated, but I am sure that we, we thought about it and took it into consideration in our programming decisions, in our planning decisions, in our, in our decisions about the way we organised ourselves and our work. So we go to the WFP office and wait till they had electricity when they would type on their defunct telex machine, one of the, which is the days of telexes, yeah. before faxes, um, they would type out a punch tape, 
which we would then take away and one of the staff would be taken down to the bus station at one o'clock in the morning to get on the bus to Khartoum, which would arrive at about 10 o'clock at night. So that was one day. And then they would um, get up the next morning and try to find an office with electricity in Khartoum that could send the telex from the punch tape to Oxfam House. And then hang around until Oxfam House had, you know, deliberated over whatever the telex said and sent back a message, which would then arrive somewhere that had electricity and this person would pick it up and would then get on the bus at one o'clock in the morning to go back to Port Sudan and arrive at kind of midnight back in Port Sudan and then come into the office. So it was a minimum of three days to have any communication with Oxfam House. And it was so liberating. Mm. You could actually get on with your job. You could make decisions, you could be responsible and accountable as we say nowadays you had a job to do and you got on with it because you only got in touch with Oxfam House either with your regular report, you know, a weekly or monthly report that you'd send in with a pouch or else um, uh, you know, in desperation you would use this minimum of three days method because there was no other way of, of doing it, there were no phones out of, uh, out of Sudan at all really and you, if you went down to Khartoum it was unlikely you'd be able to get through yourself anyway and uh, it was very empowering. We had a job to do, and we were expected to get on with it. Nowadays, of course, uh, you've got not only a, your manager, and your manager's manager, and your manager's manager's manager, but a load of advisors watching you on the email constantly and expecting answers to things. And you're oh, in such a different position as a program manager in the field now to what we were then. And the technology yeah. has changed things so enormously. And uh, changed things for the worst. Well, I, I, I'm sure that it's better in some ways, in as much as, you know, there were times when I wanted advice and I couldn't get it. Yes. And nowadays, one wants advice and can get it. And um, uh, we had a, a very unfortunate uh, incident where we were digging a well and there was a dewatering pump in the well and... Unfortunately, the fumes overcame one of the well diggers who died. And, uh, you know, we could really have done with a bit of support over that because, you know, clearly it was, it was an accident. Now, whether there was negligence or not, you know, was the kind of thing that mm. was arguable. But, but we really needed, you know, help and support over that. And we couldn't get it easily. So, you know, there, there, are, there are times when actually you're very pleased that you can lean on headquarters, if you like. But in other ways, it was much better, I think, to be given the responsibility to do a job and to be able to get on with it without being watched all the time. Mm -hmm. And particularly in high-profile high crises, you know, it, you talk to anybody who's, I don't know, in BAM or, um, I don't know, uh, you know, Ache or somewhere, and I bet they spend half of their time dealing with people who want to communicate with them over the email and the uh, mobile phones. Yes. So there's pros and cons, but I, I have to say I, I liked it better then than I think I would like it now. And I was amazed going back to Darfur uh, last year, in the middle of 2004, um, to do a real-time evaluation of the programme that, that is being done there now in relation to the conflict in Darfur. Mm. Um, everybody's got mobile phones. And last time I lived in Darfur in 1985-86, I don't think there was a phone in the whole... Well, there wasn't a working phone in the whole area that I was working in. Uh, so, big changes from the technology in the ways that... I mean, 
it's more than ways that we work. It's about the yes. way that we relate to each other because of that, I think. Yeah. yeah. Mm. You were sort of talking um, earlier before we, we started the tape, I think about how it was a very physically hard life. I don't know whether that was in Red Sea Province or whether that was in Darfur that you were talking about, but just for you know, a white guy, uh, even though you'd lived in Sudan for, for some years, but, it, it, you know, it, it was a very a very difficult and strenuous life. So let's say a bit more about that. Um, well, I, uh, particularly Nandi, so they were sick of me talking about how, um, how, how difficult Port Sudan was, and, and I, it, the, it's the climate that's so difficult in that part of the world. Um, we had a period, in my first year there, we had a period of um, 14 weeks when the temperature every day was over 50 and at night never went below 42. Never went below 42 mm. all night. And it's a very humid environment as well. And it is incredibly hard physically. Um, I mean, it happened as, you know, as you said, John, I, I'd lived through a few years in Sudan and I... Uh, like Sudanese people, I speak Sudanese Arabic. I know my way around. You know, I'm happy living on Sudanese food and uh, and so on. But but people who um, who didn't have that advantage, I think, found it even harder than I did. And there were very long days travelling in Land Rovers over impossible. Well, they're not roads. I mean, they're you know just rocks mm. that you travel over. Um, sometimes two, three days at a time to get somewhere. Um, Two little anecdotes, if I may. And one of those, I, I remember one journey where we had 17 flat tyres in the space of a week. And, you know, that was, you know, you take the wheel off and then you have to take the tyre off the wheel and repair the inner tube and then get the tyre back on. And getting a, getting a heavy-duty tyre on a Land Rover wheel with, you know, nothing but brute force is, uh, is a game. You know, none of that fancy stuff that you get in tyre-changing shops. Um, and the, the other anecdote, so a bit of an anecdote, I suppose, there was the Red Sea Province is very big um, and very inaccessible, and there were places we had been distributing food to for years, literally, that nobody had ever visited, had met people from there, had mm. talked to people about it, but nobody had been there. And I decided it wasn't good enough, and besides, I felt like going there. And uh, I had the most amazing two-week trip on a camel, and we, you know, somebody set it up, and we drove... The Land Rover, you know, as far as we could into a dry stream bed where we were met with guys on camels, and and we headed on up into the hills, sort of towards the Eritrean border, um, and it was absolutely fantastic. And my back has never recovered. <laughs> <laughs> my first job with Oxfam was in Sudan, and uh, one of the last things that I did um, in in one of my last roles in Oxfam was to go and do um, the, you know, the fashionable real-time evaluations that we're doing. And I think rightly, by the way, mm. um, that shouldn't be a put-down. I think it's exactly the right thing to be doing. But um, I went and I did a, uh, a month in Darfur in July 2004, and then about three weeks in Chad on the other side of the border in September, looking at the programs we were doing. And I have to say they were fairly sorry programs in lots of ways. Mm. And it's rather easy for you know an old Sudan hand like me to look at the young sprogs who are coming in there and you know never been to Sudan before, don't speak the language, don't understand bugger all about anything that's going on there, and be critical about it. And and I suppose I have a, I have to control the tendency to do that. But the um, the truth of it is that there's two sides to it. 
One is that Darfur is a very different place now than it was when I worked there for Save the Children in the, in the mid-80s. Um, it's a very different place. Um, uh, Sudan was um, uh, formative for me in, in many ways in my relationship with, uh, with Oxfam. Um, I mean, Darfur nowadays is a very different place, and it was a peaceful place, although a difficult place when I was there in the 80s. And, and now it's not a peaceful place, and uh, travel there is very difficult. And... And we have a much more complex way of looking at the world, which I think we've referred to in you know, some of the earlier bits of this, this, this conversation. And, and I think we, we really struggled. We really struggled to, to bed ourselves in in order to produce a good programme. And I'm talking about the operational programme rather than the advocacy programme, because there was an awful lot of... You know, undoubtedly valuable work at the UN and the Sudanese government in one way or another, or with GFID and so on. Um, and I'm sure that was very valuable. But when it came to, um, you know, going to a camp where Oxfam was committed to doing latrines for 40,000 people and was saying that's what it was doing, but hadn't dug a single one several weeks in, mm. you know, uh, doesn't make you feel good. And, and I didn't feel good about it. And um, I don't know what I should be saying this on record, but you know, I wrote a very critical report um, which spent an awful long time whirring around nowhere and um, probably ended up in a safe somewhere, marked, you know, stamped confidential, because it sure didn't get out in a, anything like the form that I wrote it in. And it, I suppose you know, I was looking at it with a slightly jaded viewpoint, maybe, after nearly 17 years in Oxfam, but also with you know, what I have to be careful of, which is my... You know, happy memories of Sudan and Darfur, you know, 15, 20 years earlier, uh, which I know I mustn't do. Um, but just seeing that really we were not hacking it. And for all the fact that the humanitarian world and the humanitarian world in Oxfam, you know, has made leaps and bounds in doing more, uh, growing in size, being more expert, having more um, strength of expertise and knowledge and specialist uh skills and so on, we were doing a lot worse job in Darfur than I think we used to do 15, 20 years ago. Um, and I mean, I suppose that's worrying. It's not, uh, I shouldn't make that criticism of Oxfam overall, but it is, it's indicative of the fact that there is, uh, there's two things going on. One is our increasing sophistication, our understanding, our, you know, our management techniques, our uh, advisory skills, you know, all that sort of stuff on the one hand, and the other hand there is this endless intractability of the real world mm. where, you know, however good you are at livelihoods programs or digging the trees or whatever, if you get somewhere that is in, in the midst of a really vicious civil war and with all the political complexities of Darfur as it is now uh, it's difficult <laughs> and uh, somehow you frustrate yourself more by having all of that expertise that you can't deploy Almost, and it's much harder to be imaginative and think out of the box. And you know, when I was in when I was in Port Sudan and Red Sea Hills, I would have ideas, and people would come back and say, oh, "Do you think that's a good idea?" Whereas nowadays, you have an idea, and there's you know, there's somebody who's got a library to throw in your head about what you haven't thought of. So um, that's, that sounds like me being a, you know an old fart, doesn't it, really? But I, I do think we've got ourselves into a little bit of a, an over-specialised trap. And, and I've had this reflection in relation to... Um, or I remember very specifically in relation to the, um, the BAM programme in Iran in, after the earthquake there 
what was that uh, Christmas 2003 mm. reflections on that were that we were sort of stuck in our in our expertise, we, you know, we had to do everything. We had to have the health advisor and the gender advisor and the water advisor and the livelihood advisor and the shelter advisor and the logis- logistics advisor and everything. And it kind of stopped us getting, getting on with it in a way. So I think there's a real tension in there that I've watched Oxfam over the years try to resolve, not well enough maybe, but you know, sort of dig ourselves into the pit and not quite sure how to dig ourselves out of it. Um, you know, I've left now, it's six, nine months on and, you know, everybody knows these things and maybe maybe we're getting somewhere. But I do feel that that has not been all that helpful in all circumstances. In some circumstances, yes, but, you know, we have to get out of this one-size-fits-all. You know, if, you, if you've got all those advisors, they all have to be on everything. I think... Mm, we're yes, overloaded. Yeah, I think we overload ourselves and places where we really need to be simpler and sharper, we find it hard to be. We don't differentiate enough between those. Particularly the big high-profile crises, you know, if you went in there with a skimpy team, you'd get criticised for it, but maybe that's what you actually need to do. And there's a lot, you know, I'm just saying on this tape, some of the, the, I'm Mm. not saying something I wouldn't have said or haven't said inside the department, in the humanitarian department, before I left. If you've enjoyed this download, you might like to listen to other podcasts at Force Migration Online www.forcemigration.org slash podcasts.